This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 30th and the 31st of August 2023 at home in Wicklow. It was an interrupted recording because of a power failure. And in it, I I pick up last week's theme, which was nudity and nakedness, and I expand on the topic and just pick up some threads that I'd dropped and forgot to mention last week. So I talk about male nudity. I talk about uh, I talk about shame and the, the religious uh, frame of shame around nudity and sexuality. I talk about original sin and why I detest that concept. I talk about the German photographer Helmut Newton and his erotic oeuvre, his photographs of semi-clad women who looked quite severe and austere. Um, and I talk about a, a photographer who has challenged the Helmut Newton back catalogue by reshooting his work using male models instead of female models and the, the effect of that. I also talk a little bit about the Burning Man Festival and a recent bit of controversy there and how that made me think about the exclusivity of so many cultural and social and sporting events and how they've all become the sort of playgrounds of the, the super rich and how I have a real problem with that. And I conclude today's episode with a bit of a... Uh, well, I mean, it's hardly a review, but um, a discussion of a book I just completed, um, which is John Borman's Conclusions. Um, just him writing about his reflections on a life and career in movies, but um, a really enjoyable read. So that's what's coming up. I hope you can find time to listen. Thank you for coming to the clear out. I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Change my mind Leaving the dream behind Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. I hope this finds you well. How are you? No, I'm serious. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh after I say I'm serious, but I am. How are you? Sometimes that is a dreaded question a dreaded question so uh, feel free to throw a euphemism in my face and tell me you're grand grand that uh, that very much favored irishism grand which could mean terrible <laughs> furious totally depressed would you tell someone if you're really happy anyway here we are Another week, another episode of this thing that I do. And in today's episode, I will be jumping around a bit. I'm not entirely sure where I'm going. As always, in, in that regard, this is very much and consistently an organic podcast. Very organic. No, no extras, no additives nothing genetically modified 
nothing that is indicative of an industrial complex of any kind it's I don't want to say freestyling I definitely don't want to say stream of consciousness because freestyling would push us in uh, the direction of half-assed and frivolous and empty stream of consciousness will push us in a very pretentious direction um i'm somewhere in between (laughs) i'm perhaps more fully asked but only slightly pretentious anyway i think what i'll do is i'll i'll pick up last week's episode last week i spoke about a lot of different different things related to nudity and nakedness and i was speaking in the literal sense and trying to look at nudity and nakedness and the unclothed uncovered body in uh different contexts um but i was also looking at nudity in terms of being emotionally naked really figuratively speaking opening oneself up to another's gaze which i believe is true vulnerability but which could be um a testament to to trust it could be a testament to to confidence um it could be a testament to the high esteem in which you hold the person to whom you are revealing yourself so if you want to hear more of my thoughts on that go back and listen to last week's episode wherever you get your podcasts but i did there were a couple of things i wanted to touch on that i didn't i'm just going to begin this week's episode with that and then um, that'll kick me on to something else but um at one point i listed uh like famous movie news or actors who you know who have been naked in movies and even though it had been my intention to list male and female performers i ended up just listing female performers and it was just because i think my brain was a bit fried at that stage of the podcast and i let myself get distracted by looking at some different uh things before i started recording and um it pushed me it pushed some things out of my head um but actors who probably should have got a mention male performers uh who should have got a mention were probably people like michael fassbender um and uh vigo mortensen who has had that famous um really really uh, effective fight in a turkish bath in in london in the film eastern promises uh the david cronenberg film which was um which came not long after cronenberg's a history of violence which also starred vico mortensen who who uh strips off at one point in that in a sex scene with uh, maria bello is that right maria bello i think it is playing his wife in that for me um a history of violence is by far the better movie just leaner tighter cleaner storytelling eastern promises even though vigo looks 
pretty amazing. It's um, it's an awkwardly paced movie and doesn't quite work. Even though you've got some great performances, particularly by Vigo uh, Mortensen and also uh, the now departed Armin Müller-Stahl. That's a very sinister uh, Turkish, you know, Don, you know, head gangster of a Russian crime organization in London. And the French actor Vincent Cassel um, as the sort of useless, feckless gangster son of the aforementioned Mueller style. Also very good. Naomi Watts is in that as well. Not a big fan. I'm sorry, Naomi. Not a big fan. She's just a bit, I don't know, a bit of a trip. Um, and Cirque Cusack, the Irish actress, is in it as well. But um, yeah, so famous naked scene there for Vigo. Um, so yeah, I just felt well that was a bit unfair to mention uh, the females and not the males. I'm trying to think of other famous male nudes in in cinema. But um, I'll come back to that. And I mean, I kind of addressed it last week. It's uh, you ju- you just can't escape the fact that the, the female form has been objectified and fetishized. Um, in a sexual way, um, far more than than the male body, than the male, the male of the species, um, and yeah, that's um, well. I'll, I'll jump to it now. It was funny this week after I'd you know after last week's podcast there was a an article in the Guardian a few days ago or over the weekend. Um, about well, indirectly about the German photographer Helmut Newton, who I suppose was at his most active from the sort of what fifties right through to probably the end of his days. He died in a car crash, I think, in two thousand and four. Um, but he, when I think of Helmut Newton, I just think of these you know black and white photographs of semi-naked uh women very you know willowy lean women often in um uh i was gonna say fancy dress i don't mean fancy dress but i mean uh you know formal dress sometimes wearing tuxedos sometimes dresses sometimes only half dressed often in what appear to be very luxurious or grand settings in fine houses or hotels or drawing rooms or wherever and the women would often have a very sort of chilly demeanor very kind of stern faced and they to me were evocative of I don't know, maybe the nineteen twenties. I don't know if I've if I'm placing the the, the look correctly. Um, yeah, I think maybe the twenties or the thirties. They didn't look like you know flappers, um, but just something belonging to sort of the the upper classes um, and. I think there was always a sense of the forbidden and a sense of the the lens being a, a voyeur 
and there was always a a sexual undercurrent if it wasn't very overt in the the staging of the the photographs um but a very distinctive I mean photographer stylist I suppose artist however you want to think of him you know like a photographer and a fashion photographer he, I think he photographed for Vogue um a lot and a very you know a very kind of def- you know defining definitive photographer with the look and he, you know if, if you go back and look at his photographs you'll see you know a lot of famous uh, celebrities uh, posed for him at different stages um and i think also in his aesthetic there was something that um foretold the the chilly 80s vibe um that sort of icy coldness of the 80s the kind of the dead eyes and um yeah the 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 cold gaze of the subjects um but in any case there was an article about a german female photographer whose name is i want to say honey hape that's h-a-n-i honey hape H-A-P-E, it could be happy. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Anyway, she has done a restaging of Helmut, some of Helmut Newton's most famous photographs. And instead of putting women into them, she's put men into them. Um, and it's caused a bit of a stir and it's kind of going, well, hold on, can we, can we objectify men in the same way? What's the effect if we take these famous photographs and switch out the women and put in men how do we respond to that um and it's just kind of raising this kind of counterpoint to yeah the objectification and sexualization of the female form and uh, looking at um a creator an artist um who who you know whose trademark that was um and playing with that expectation um so in fact i might throw a, i might throw a link to that article in the um the show notes so if you look there um i'll throw in a link to that article and you can see what you think yourself and make up your own mind um because there are some photographs from her exhibition in the article and it it's funny i mean when i my first response was one of being amused so there's something i think maybe because it's so unexpected and we're well i am certainly unaccustomed to seeing male models presented that way um as in naked uh fully naked um in these kind of sexualized poses um, sometimes it held but Newton was also sort of a sort of sadomasochistic vibe um, to some of the the the, the photographs um, and so when I saw these photographs in this particular article I was like okay is this is this a joke um, because it looks a little bit ludicrous but again what does that tell you it just tells you well I'm just not used to seeing this and you know, I don't know like if a if a female eye looks at those photographs are they 
are they titillated are they aroused stimulated do they find it sexual uh are they turned on do they find it amusing um do they do they see it as a sort of a a, a vindication of the i don't know i mean it's not I, I don't know what words one would choose but is I mean, it, it, there must be a time in a woman's life <laughs> it could come at any time when they just roll their eyes and go oh my god again another naked female body another pair of breasts another naked ass another highly sexualized young woman you know for whom has this image been made and what is this image trying to sell and what does this you know what is this implanting in the eyes and brains or in in the brains of um of young women of young men uh of anyone the you know it's 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 the status quo um and i mean, I, I think it's i think it's it's a, it's a, i think it's an ongoing um is it is it is it an, is it an issue I mean, it's not a phenomenon. It just seems to be a fact of life, a fact of a fact of what? A fact of commerce, a fact of do I do I want to say the male gaze? Do I want to say it's a fact of the appetite for the ongoing sexualization of the female form? Am I going to sit here and pretend? I don't often enjoy seeing that. I mean, I think I'd be lying, wouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I can be indifferent to it. It's like, oh, okay, grand. And then sometimes you just go, wow, that looks really nice. But then can you look at that and go, that looks really nice and appreciate the female form or look at a beautiful woman and then... Where, you know, where does that live? That I mean, I think that's more where I'd be. I'm interested in that. Like, where does that live in what I believe to be true about women and how women are and how they think? I don't think it. it I don't think it, it sits anywhere other than aesthetic. Like it's an aesthetic pleasure, and sometimes it'll hit. I mean, I, I, this must be true for everyone though. Like you'll see someone or something or an image that hits you in that part of your being that is responding sexually or erotically like there's an erotic charge but it doesn't have to mean anything beyond that and i mean i, I don't think i mean I'm not, I'm not being disingenuous when i i say that um i think like i think the danger area is when assumptions are made based on the assumptions are made about the the subject of the photograph you know assumptions are made about the woman in the photograph or the woman in the movie um and assumptions are made about um sexual attitudes um sexual availability um assumptions are made about agency about um complicity and i think that's a i think that's a really 
really dodgy dodgy path to go down, go down and I dis I distrust it um but I, I I suppose when there's a a relentless um a relentless kind of conveyor belt of of that kind of imagery it does I don't know it it it, it, it it's a form of conditioning isn't it and I think it takes a certain what a certain awareness a certain willpower a certain desire to just take a couple of steps back um like a, a determination or an interest in stepping back to go okay what is this really and then I think it can be well it can be dismissed or taken as I said before as just purely the aesthetic um but I wonder if, see, and this is the thing, if we flip the world on its head and go, let's, instead of all these images of naked women and highly sexualized women, particularly younger women, uh, and women in a state of undress or women in ridiculous poses and, you know, contractions of their back or whatever, putting their bum out or their chest forward or looking, you know, whatever coquettish or sexual or lustful or whatever it might be if we take all of those images and let's go boom wipe them away and boom suddenly throw in men 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 in those same images would men all over the world feel insecure about their own bodies about their own physiques, about their own appearance? Would men obsess about how they are perceived by women? Um, would men be constantly trying to measure up to those beauty standards and present themselves in highly sexualized ways? I shouldn't laugh. In highly sexualized ways in you know various public spaces um and have a very a very strange relationship with female desire and a very strange relationship with wanting to be desired but also wanting to be respected um yeah i, I mean and, and i guess on a level that's what the the photographer Hany Hape or Hany Hape is perhaps trying to she's trying to stimulate that conversation maybe or maybe she's trying to stimulate a reappraisal of Helmut Newton's work um, and I mean the actor in me I always liked Helmut Newton's photographs because they were dramatic um, and they had like atmosphere and you know it felt like there was a story and I was drawn to that um, because I'd probably, I'd probably have to say the, the, some of the, 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 the women featured in his work sometimes were quite androgynous looking. Um, and so in a way, as much as I'd re- recognised, you know, when I, when I would first come across his work, 
uh, when I was much younger, as much as I would have recognized that there were sort of sexualized, you know, images, I didn't particularly respond to them in that way. Um, but it was more the sense of, oh, is this is this something out of kind of film noir or, you know, what what's playing out here? And, and that's that's what appealed to me. And in fact, at the start of this year, when I was doing um, the play with uh, the play Manifest with Broken Talkers, um, I gave one of the members of the cast um, a Helmut Newton image. It's like, you know, a bit of a tradition. Uh, any any shows I've ever been involved in, usually there's an exchange of cards or little tiny gifts or something, bef- you know, before the play opens or and so, um, yeah, I gave someone um, a Helmut Newton postcard of a a woman, maybe two women. Was it one? Was it two? I can't remember. In tuxedos, in a street. It could have been Berlin. <laughs> Black and white, nighttime. Dramatic. Um, anyway, that was that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. This uh, this Helmut Newton revisionism and uh, re-presentation of his work with naked men instead of naked women so as i said you can if you want to check that out look for that link in the the show notes to this episode um the other things i wanted to talk about last week that i didn't i was going to just tell you a, a silly little story is it a silly little story it's something that happened did it happen to me or did I, did I drive it? So when I was in acting school in England back in the, the DAY. Um, so I would have been twenty, blah, 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 23, 24. Yeah, I was twenty three or twenty four when I was in acting school in England in Exeter down in beautiful Devon, and I was always, always always broke (laughs) flat broke and my ears were open for different opportunities to uh, to make money um although i think in the entire time i was there i don't think i ever got a i managed to i managed to get away with not having a part-time job how the hell did i manage that i must have been getting some financial assistance from from my parents perhaps um yeah anyway it was brought to my attention that there was an art class that was looking for nude models so i quickly volunteered and i did um i don't know how many i did three four five sessions over the course of a year um and that was fine i was quite unselfconscious about it and just Again, this goes back to what I was saying last week about context. Um, so I just went up to some artist's studio. It was daytime, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten artists in the room. I'd be directed into a certain pose and you'd I'd hold it. And away they'd go. And there might be a bit of chit chat. Um, and one of the days. I must have, it must have. You know, I must have just been sharing that I was over in England studying as in acting school and I was asked to sing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. 
here I am, naked, naked as the day I was born. Why wouldn't I sing on this stool in front of these very genteel English artists? And I sang, I would have sang, um, I would have sung an Irish traditional song, I think. I think I sang She Moved Through the Fair. (laughs) And um, it just seems ridiculous now. Um, But, oh, I don't know. I think I was just, uh, I don't want to say I wasn't savvy. But I was quite trustful, I suppose. Um, And I'd kind of give situations the benefit of the doubt uh, and trust my instinct. And I was just like, yeah, grand. Just who who cares? A a bit of that, a bit of the who cares thing. And also, you know, I had an audience. And, um, you know, you might be thinking, you know, there I was, the little... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the little naked Irishman in the, the studio with the English artists and you know was I not did I not feel scared was I not feeling vulnerable you know trapped in there with them but you see really isn't it more a case that they were trapped in there with me <laughs> Um, and yeah so there I was I was getting paid I was getting paid to do that <laughs> <laughs> and there was one guy who did ask me if I did um, private sessions and I looked at him we held each other's gaze for some time and I said yes <laughs> but I never heard from him again anyway so um, yeah I I don't know I don't know how I let that slip through the net last week but uh, money, money exchanged hands, and um, yeah, money, money, uh, money well earned, and I'm sure money well spent. Um, and so the other thing I wanted to talk about in that area of nakedness and nudity was the idea of of shame, and of course context, and propriety well i mean propriety or you know whatever is appropriate in particular contexts and i personally i've you know again i mean sometimes i just feel yeah i've been very lucky not to have been you know made feel ashamed um for anything to do with with uh you know being naked um but I, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about the, the, you know, the the that kind of core part of religious belief and you know Christian belief, where when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit, tempted by, tempted by the devil in the form of a serpent, and they eat. The forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge, uh, something they've been warned by God not to do. And the second they bite, take a bite out of the apple, um, it is an apple, isn't it? Or, or is that something we've just assumed over the years or in the retellings? 
But in any case, they take a bite from the forbidden fruit and in that moment they become aware of their nakedness as they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. Um, And I suppose, or it's my understanding that that's the, the, the idea of kind of original sin is born there, you know, the first man and woman and they weren't able to keep it together. They had it all but it wasn't enough. We'll just take one little bite. Who's going to know over in this corner of the garden? He won't be looking. But uh, as Kate Blanchett, uh, as Lydia Tarr said to the schoolgirl in the schoolyard in Berlin, the schoolgirl who was bullying her daughter, she said, God is always watching. And I detest the idea of original sin I detest it I find it abhorrent I find it I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, I won't even be able to find the words to express my my disgust my detestation of that concept to be born flawed to be born broken to be born with sin inside already um there's something so i think there's something so perverse and warped about that that viewpoint um i yeah it um it 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 pushes it, it pushes a button in me and i just i just have this kind of visceral reaction um i'm i'm just repelled by that idea um and this you know to 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 re you know to reconnect it to this idea of you know guilt shame um a sense of personal failure moral failure um moral inadequacy uh around oneself and the you know the nudity and that shame being um synonymous with moral failure and the idea then that you've you've let the higher being the higher power the superior one you've let them down and you can never be readmitted into the clean space and so the idea of of being sullied the idea of being dirty unclean besmirched forever having that spot that stain on you um it's it's horrendous and i think i i don't know where it came from because this was not ever something that was explicitly given to me or laid out for me or you know preached to me by my parents for example or 
I don't know, teachers or other adult figures, you know, as I was growing up. Um, I, I don't know. There's something, there's something that gets ignited in me at the, you know, when I kind of come up against that area. Um, and I have a, a sort of a, I, I don't want to say anarchic impulse, but I have a rebellious impulse <laughs> you know, that makes me want to, you know, strip off and, you know, shake my genitals around and go, yeah, it's just a bloody body. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Yeah, I touched myself and it was great. <laughs> and I touched her too. And that was great too. And what business is it of anybody's but mine and hers or mine alone or whatever? You know what I mean? Um, and I'm like, shame. I've spoken about shame before. I did. I did do. Um, I did do an episode on shame, didn't I? I'm pretty sure I did. Um, I don't value it. And that doesn't mean I'm incapable of feeling shame. I can, um, but I don't know. There's something about shame as a moral weapon, as a moralizing weapon to, you know, to put shame on someone else um, or to create an atmosphere where someone might feel ashamed, uh, you know, humiliated, less than. Uh, and it's one of my great fears as a parent that I may inadvertently create those factors um for my daughter um particularly when i'm failing to control my anger and you know failing to insulate her from my issues um and that is something i i try to be hyper vigilant about uh because i i think yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's 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 safe to say that I would have grown up in a household where um, the the actions of of you know one of my parents would have led to a lot of you know the actions, the behaviour, um, and the atmosphere created by one of my parents would have led to feelings of of shame, uh, feelings of low self worth. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I think my my three brothers would feel the same way, and I'm I recognise it in myself. I recognise it in my own parenting at times. And I go, whoa, whoa, hold on now, catch yourself, because you're being too indulgent of your own crap and allowing yeah allowing your daughter to be collateral damage, and that's just irresponsible. And unfair, um, and yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, I've spoken about this before, um, so again, if you revisit other episodes, I know there was one relatively recently where I was talking about yet another parenting fail, but it's in that area of, of you know of creating shame, guilt. You know, children. I think are. You know, well, most children, I, I think, have an impulse to please. 
and an impulse to appeal for the approval of their parents and the affirmation of their parents um and it's very easy to it's very easy to become insensitive to that i think as a parent um just through you know the daily travails of life or an accumulation of fatigue or you know something that i brought up in the very first episode of the podcast the idea of just being a bit complacent around the people closest to you because you work on this assumption that eh, there's loads of time to repair this <laughs> they'll be around for a long time and uh, you know tomorrow's another day um and we can just indulge um a complacency and a laziness and open the door to a certain deluded thinking that minimizes our bad behavior towards the the people closest to us um and it's uh it's no good <laughs> it's no good and but yeah i i as i say it's i find i i try to be very tuned tuned into that um yeah okay so anyway that was you know again it was something i wanted to talk about last week the idea of of shame and 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 nudity um and i think my own conviction i suppose in that area if you start to kind of take it into um take it into the the area of sex that within the sort of kind of judeo-christian traditions there was a lot of kind of guilt and secrecy um around sex around masturbation um around of course sex outside the you know the institution of marriage um you know and you know catholicism would have had a lot of responsibility in that area um and certainly growing up in um in ireland in the you know the mid 20th century up to the kind of 90s there was you know the, the, you know sexual attitudes were still extremely um you know conservative and restrictive um and I think, you know, it, it was a great, I mean, what, it just was what it was. These were the times where, like, the, the, the church had far too much influence in, in the lives of, of Irish people, had too much influence in the institutions of the state. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about the, you know, the abuse in those institutions. That's not where I wanted to go. But um, you know, it has it has it has an impact. All of the um, you know, all of the the, the moralizing, all of the the, the 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 forbidding gaze of the church that had a huge negative impact on. I think the 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 sexual. The sexual lives of individuals, I think, you know, the, the, that's that relationship you build with your, your, you know, your, with your your sexual self um, is deeply personal, 
and deeply private and again you know I had the luck to grow up in a house where religion was not part of our experience my parents were both raised Catholics but by the time they became parents they were sort of liberal um, left-leaning hippies um, and the attitudes in the house um, reflected that so um, you know even though I spoke you know a few moments ago about um, low self-worth and feelings of shame or you know failure in in you know in the family as, as, as children they didn't relate to to sexuality they didn't relate to you know the, the the body um so you know i have to acknowledge that and i remain grateful for that because you know through different relationships in my life and you know previous uh you know romantic relationships i just know the impact um you know that's had on on different individuals um you know male and female so uh yeah shame no thanks lads no thanks get the hell out of here i'm not interested you know own your behavior own your mistakes um uh and yeah own own your body own your body that's um is that easier said than done? I think it is. I think it is for a lot of people. I think it is uh, easier said than done for a lot of women. Um, but own your body. And as I as I said last week, you know, look at what your body can do rather than what it looks like. Um, is that is that too is that too naff? Is that too facile? Um, yeah. Okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dig this hole any deeper for myself. I'm gonna back out of it and move on um unrelated two things two other things i want to talk about in uh in this episode um another article came across my desk um just yesterday and it was an article about burning man burning man the festival in um I want to say Nevada. Is that right? It's in the desert in America and has been going for many, many years. And it seems in recent times it's morphed from something that really was quite countercultural and maybe hippie-ish and a little bit anarchic and a little bit off-grid. Um, it's morphed into something that's attracted um people with a lot of money um and has become sort of a a go-to festival for uh you know silicon valley heads and tech bros um and has maybe moved very far away from what it was and in any case there was a um a protest en route to the festival um you know in the last week or so um and there were basically there were eco protesters climate change protesters who were trying to draw attention to the the carbon footprint that burning man um produces every year um because the the idea is the whole festival gets you know 
I, I guess uh, you know immolated uh, at the end of the festival and there's there's nothing left nothing left behind um, and so the the protesters were kind of going here lads can we have a look at this um, it's it's not as black and white as that but <laughs> you know what I responded to when I when I saw the article um, I've, I've got I've got a couple of friends who've been to Burning Man um, one who went there and was you know part of a crew that built some amazing you know amazing structure um, another friend who just went to you know go and have go and have a blast now let me interrupt that stuttering flow and tell you that I had to pause the recording there and I'm resuming it now um, approximately 12 hours later there was a power cut and uh, I had to abandon the podcast and that's you know depending on when you're listening to this this won't <laughs> this will have no impact on you the listener but um, it means this episode is coming out a little bit later than normal um, our second power cut in uh, the, the last week and a half extremely frustrating to be plunged into darkness um, Kiara had just come home from a, a rehearsal and no hot dinner no hot shower for her <laughs> straight to bed not a lot of fun and the power is still off so I'm completing this recording the following morning from when I started it's lashing rain outside and I'm just going to try and exploit the last bit of battery power in my computer to to get me to the end of this episode so in any case I was talking about Burning Man and yeah what can I say well I mean a disclaimer on my part is that I'm not really a festival guy <laughs> that's not my scene and you know festivals um as you know these great communal events and you know and some festivals clearly tip towards a sort of a, a bacchanalia sort of vibe where we're all going mental together and isn't it lovely and it's just um yeah it's just not my scene and that's fine and you know off you go and have a great time but you add into the mix um and this is where my cynicism kicks in and it's like well we're doing you know oh so we're, what we're doing is so alternative and it's so out there and we're the real you know radicals uh <laughs> i you know my phony detector kicks in and yeah i um i don't know i i, I just don't i don't buy it and generally the very um the very sort of performative having a good time aren't we so you know exhilarated by this whole experience um and maybe that that's coincided with how it's relayed back to us on social media or how people will you know feel compelled to tell you all about it for the rest of their days um it just yeah it just leaves me cold um and of course I'm exposing myself as a bit of a crank <laughs> but um, that's that's just how I feel and I like I'm more of a, a one-to-one guy 
mean, there's a reason I like to swim by myself. There's a reason I was attracted to the kind of ascetic, disciplined, solitary martial arts uh, life as well. I like um, I like my own. It's not that I enjoy my own company. I like being alone. Uh, <laughs> and I like being left to kind of focus on my own thing. Um, I just sound miserable, don't I? It's it's yeah, it's pathetic. Anyway, that's just a disclaimer. Okay, so you know, you know, I, it's, I can't sit here and go I'm unbiased or I'm objective. But what I will focus on out of that story was the idea that suddenly this big event, which, as I said earlier, presumably started in a much more lo-fi, organic way, um, has become this chosen uh, festival of extremely wealthy people and you know arriving in super duper rvs um and what struck me what i took away from that article was not so much rolling my eyes at burning man but in general the trend across the world it seems of events um huge huge sort of entertainment events or sports events are becoming more and more exclusive and prohibitive and it's it's i find it kind of disgusting because suddenly all these kind of great experiences are just going to be something available to people with loads of money or people who don't have a lot, you know a lot of money but are killing themselves to get there um and there's something that feels very undemocratic about it and i mean if you if i switch over to the premiership for example football uh in the english premier league um i think the club i support has the most expensive season tickets in the premier league and what it's doing is and I know this sounds like a cliche, it's kind of squeezing out um, normal people. <laughs> and it's squeezing out the kind of, you know, it's removing the sort of the affordability and the democratic experience of, yeah, we can all go to the football and enjoy the football. And, you know, I would argue that you can say that about a festival like Burning Man, maybe Glastonbury. I don't know. Again, I'm not a festival guy. But it's just again that sense of exclusion the sense of you know people being left behind um i mean if burning man was you know free easy to get to whatever i probably wouldn't go anyway <laughs> but there is something that just feels so wrong and imbalanced when all these various experiences and i think there is a correlation to how these experiences are relayed on social media and i mean i think this has been the great one of the um most damaging aspects of of the internet age where people can constantly present you know lifestyle 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 experience experience lifestyle and it it creates this kind of illusion of um illusion of you know extreme living and extreme experience and extreme kind of high-end lifestyle uh that 
I think has driven the the desirability of these events up and made them more exclusive and I suppose as you know people with money kind of come into them it changes the the, the chemistry and it changes the, the the dynamic and the kind of the base setting of the experience um and that's what I, I you know I kind of found myself going hold on there's yeah there's like you know there was a climate change argument there um, although apparently Burning Man do you know work very hard to offset their their carbon footprint, but um, I think those protesters were trying to make a larger argument about you know forget this kind of tokenistic um, offset and let's look at kind of sustainability and a long term sustainable um, focused approach to addressing climate change. Um, and I think, you know, that was part of that argument where people, again, the performative, hey, I'm green, I do this. And their, I guess their argument was like, no, it has to be, like that has to be the lifestyle. Like not, the event is not the lifestyle, um, but committing in a very widespread, uh, sustainable way to whole cultural change and whole kind of societal change to address um the climate crisis uh but yeah i mean as i say my takeaway was rich people <laughs> stop wrecking everything um so there's for me it, it ended up being a sort of a you know a marxist position or an economics and you know an economic injustice position or how the, you know an excess of wealth and disparity of wealth ruins everything um do i sound really naive Maybe I am, and maybe I haven't made that point very well. In any case, um, I, you know, have a have a think yourself about that one. Um, I think um, it's worth it's it is worth reflecting on. And again, the solution I don't know what the solution is. Like the solution is, you know, it is more of a socialist mindset to go. Hold on, we we have to stop just surrendering to the people who are dictating you know, the market value of these experiences and go, you know what, no, we're not going, you know, tools down until something more equitable redresses the balance. Um, because it's just, it, it, it's, it just seems insane. It just seems to be only moving in one direction. And there is something about that that I find sort of uh, despairing. Um and depressing um, and infuriating and it just seems like people are too meek uh, to care and people will just go oh well it is what it is that's the experience that's what you have to pay suck it up um, and you know it just reverts to a sort of a you know if you worked hard enough <laughs> you know you'd be able to do these things and um, and yeah, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start waging class warfare right now at the end of this episode. Maybe I should do a do a special on that. Anyway, that's all on that. One final thing uh, for today's episode. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about a lovely book I just read, and that book was is called Conclusions, written by the director John Borman. Uh, he wrote it only in the last couple of years 
and um, he's a really lovely writer. And it's, you know, broadly speaking, it's just him reflecting on his 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 life and his career as um, really a, a highly successful filmmaker. And um, the book is it's not that long, but it's full of you know juicy little stories and anecdotes of you know various actors and Hollywood and film people that he worked with. Um, but it's also the story of his family. It's the story of his different uh, wives. And for me, most kind of movingly, um, it's the story of his life living in Wicklow, where I live. And he lived uh, not far from where I sit. Um, I always knew he was in the area. Um, and he, he writes these lovely passages about you know, his home in Wicklow and the surrounding countryside and landscape and the trees especially being this sort of haven for him over 40 or 50 years. Um, now, I'm not sure that he's still there. He may have sold up in the last year or two because he's, he's you know become quite elderly and he writes about that very eloquently in his book as well. Um, just kind of getting older and having kind of diminished faculties and the frustrations of that um, but yeah just a really really nice read um, he's just got a really nice authorial voice and expresses himself very well um, with some really nice kind of observations and insights and bit of self-deprecation which I always appreciate um, but you know a director who probably had his his heyday earlier in his career and never kind of recovered those heights I mean most famously perhaps he was the director he was the director of Deliverance um, that kind of male um, male kind of right I don't it's not a rite of passage but um, you know the male kind of trial by fire uh, movie civilization versus um, versus kind of atavism I suppose and you know a brutal and kind of terrifying movie in places but really really brilliant and brilliantly directed and you know what an announcement of Burt Reynolds talent in that particular role um also the director of point blank the lee marvin kind of uh pulpy revenge thriller lee marvin is the wronged criminal in a heist who goes after the the bad men who've done him wrong um and that's a that's a really really good movie as well as a kid i remember enjoying the emerald forest with um, Powers Booth trying to find his son who is basically abducted by a tribe of Amazonian Indians. Um, Powers Booth is like a uh, an engineer or something. I remember watching that as a kid and thinking it was a very kind of beautiful movie. Zardoz, not so sure. Still not so sure. Cult following um, Sean Connery in um, very dubious sort of bandolero codpiece um excalibur of course and i remember working um uh, beside a lake 
not far from here as a teenager and in the woods you could still see nooses hanging from the trees which would have been used in the filming of Excalibur um, and I suppose after that his um, probably his most successful movie after that came a lot later which was The General the, the black and white uh, sort of biopic of the Dublin gangster Martin Cahill played memorably by Brendan Gleeson and also a very memorable performance by John Voight as a convincing rural Irish cop who was trying to track down the general but um, yeah interesting um, just a really a really nice book and you know just a there's a bit of class stuff in there as well he came from very humble beginnings um, oh, Hope and Glory was his other great movie, which is basically a version of his childhood growing up um, along the kind of up up the River Thames. Um, a really sweet movie. Um, but like that's in there as well. Just his relationship to nature, his relationship to, to class, to his, his Englishness. Uh, yeah, and sometimes I found myself, particularly when he was talking about Ireland and certain Irish characters, um, that he he knew in the area, I was like, is he is he overegging this a little bit? Is this a little bit? Is this is there a hint, a hint of patronising the Irish here? I wasn't sure. I was a bit. I, there was just something tonally that I was like, uh, I'm not quite as comfortable going on the journey with him here. But um, a slim volume and one uh, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend. If uh, if you like movies, of course, as I do, as some of you may. Um, but yeah, just a, he's, he's just a really good writer. And um, he's quite succinct and to the point, unlike me, you might say. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's definitely one uh, I recommend you check out. Okay, so there you go. Um, a few different things today and I think I will I think I'll leave it there the rain is coming down it looks particularly particularly green out there although autumn is coming the the, the leaves on the shed in the garden are uh, turning red vivid red um, it's a lovely time of year my daughter went back to school yesterday not with a huge amount of enthusiasm and then waking up today no power lashing rain that did nothing to to change her to change her mood <laughs> but she'll soldier on she'll soldier on as we all will okay that's it um i will be back next week with something else and generally it's it's always it's always connected isn't it i mean i'll continue the theme of having a look at having a look at uh, having a look at this thing we call life and trying to work it out and being honest about constantly well in my case constantly failing to do so all right thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it if you chose this podcast particularly if it's your first gamble on the clear out and if you're a return listener wonderful thanks for coming back you can throw me love on social media if you like um all the links will be there wherever you're listening and if you are so enthused and think this is a worthwhile thing that I do here and even not worthwhile let's not make it a moral thing 
just enjoyable, just diverting, just pleasantly distracting, just infuriating, but you're a masochist. Um, you can support you can support this independent pa- podcast on patreon.com forward slash the clear out. And I'd be incredibly grateful for anything you can do for me in that area. It just uh, would further motivate me and reassure me that this is something worth doing. Okay, that's it. Take care, mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next week. All the best. See you. Bye.